All right, we've got a uh, cruise starting to form here. We're two minutes past the hour. I'm going to get us uh, all kicked off here. Uh, welcome to CE Live. I am your special guest host for today, Brandon Bedford, head of enablement manager here at Clue, uh, stepping in for the wonderful Adam McQueen as he's actually taking the CE show on the road this week at Skip and Telecon, uh, recording a bunch of episodes down there with friends live um, in Scottsdale this week. And as a reminder, it's kind of our hashtag, it's our motto. Uh, CE Live is hashtag not a webinar. So it's a conversation. If you have any questions, I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But really think of this as a discussion amongst your peers. Um, this is not, you know, we're going to present to you for an hour. We want to make this live and engaging. So there's really two ways you can ask a question. One is at the bottom right hand of your screen, there is a little hand icon. That is the raise your hand feature. And so if you would like to come off mute, jump on camera, and actually ask your question live, just toss your hand up. And then I, as the moderator, will call on you when, you're, you know, when there's a break in the conversation. Or if you prefer for me to read out your question, just drop it in the chat, and then I'll weave that into the conversation as we go. But would recommend if you're open to it, uh, using the raise your hand feature, it'll make it a lot more engaging as we have people kind of hopping up on stage and asking questions live. Um, in terms of recording, this will be recorded. The audio will be going out, I believe tomorrow and the video should be all good at, by the end of this week. And one last plug, this event is all part of the Compete Network community. If this is your first community event, welcome. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but for those that jumped, just jumped on, you'll want to complete your profile at the top right-hand side of the, the screen so that you can participate in the chat. Um, and the chat is also going to appear in your messages tab after the event is over. So you can continue conversations either as a group or with individuals one-on-one. -on -one. And the last thing I'll just say, again, this, this network is always obviously um, all, all a sum of the people that are a part of it. So if you have teammates that are involved in your CI program, or if you just know people that do uh, competitive enablement at other companies, invite them to, invite them to join the uh, Compete Network and it'll make the community even better for all of us. So without further ado, I would like to introduce two wonderful friends of uh, Clue, but also the, the Compete Network, and that is uh, Tara Scott and Eric Holland. So first and foremost, Tara was recently uh, manager, and manager of Growth and Market Intelligence at the corporate purpose software platform, Benevity, and actually just joined a new role and is on day five, actually, uh, as senior product marketing manager at Acuity Insights, uh, which is a software company focused on making educational tests, assessments more fair and equitable. Um, little fun fact, actually, about Tara. Um, Tara was her kindergarten class's valedictorian, believe it or not. Our second guest for today is Eric Holland. Uh, going to start with the fun fact here. And Eric, you just posted on LinkedIn about this. Eric didn't know what a battle card was 18 months ago when he first started as a marketing specialist and then moved into as a sales enablement manager at LucidLink. Um, he is now on day 46 as senior product marketing manager at Curement, a procurement software for the dental industry. If you're active on LinkedIn, you've probably seen a bunch of his memes as well. He's got a fire meme game. All righty. We also have one more special guest that is in the chat, one of our Compete Network community ambassadors, Dustin Ray. Uh, our ambassadors are here to answer any questions you have in the chat um, or just contribute to the conversation uh, to help make this the best community possible for Compete Pros. Uh, and without further ado, hello, Eric. Hello, Tara. How are you both doing? 
Hey, Brandon. I'm great, man. Halfway through the week's always good. How are you doing? Love it. Doing good. Doing good. How are you, Tara? Awesome. Happy to be here. Excited for this conversation. Nice. I was just chatting about um, about this in the green room as we were getting set up. I'm drinking a honey tea here. I apologize. I might be coming down with something, so hopefully I don't lose my voice halfway through this. But I'm I'm confident we'll make it through. I think we have a lot of of, of great things to discuss. All about tipping winnable deals. That is the topic of today. So at Clue, a lot of our customers uh, and compete teams that we work with are quantifying and closing what we call the competitive revenue gap, which is identifying the business problem that relates to competitors and how much revenue competitors are stealing. That could be new business, that could be existing customers that competitors are stealing. And what we want to do is present a plan to leadership and address it. And so as part of that initiative, we at Clue actually surveyed, um, with the help of third parties, over 300 revenue leaders and executives. And we found out some really interesting stats. The one that I want to kind of kick off our discussion with today is that 91%, that's basically everyone, uh, said that their deals have become more competitive over the past year. And one in three of lost deals are to compete. sorry, one of three lost deals to competitors should have been one and could have been one. And so what, what does this mean? That, that means that there's potentially millions of dollars slipping through our fingers because of this competitive revenue gap. And that's revenue that's going to our competitors. So it's kind of like a double whammy. And so I really want to start us off by kind of just sharing some stories uh, around this concept of tipping winnable deals. And I'll, I'll start with you, Eric. Uh, can you tell me about a time where in your career you helped tip a winnable deal, a neck and neck competitive uh, deal for your sales team? Yes, actually, Brandon, um, what comes to mind immediately and actually maybe setting some context for everyone would be even more helpful for the conversation. Um, so currently I'm in the dental procurement space and I came from traditional file sharing uh, for the most part. So, you know, a lot of the big name competitors of mine were Dropbox, Box, Google Drive, basically any other solution where you could store a file, right? Um, we had a niche and it came down to, we were winning a lot of deals. It was a very high competitive rate. And then, you know, suddenly last year, I think we all noticed there was a shift where deals got a lot harder, a lot more competitive and um, got brought into a situation kind of midway through where things were getting very murky. And, um, you know, it was basically someone trying to create their dream solution by putting a, a, a bunch of other solutions together um, to obviously accomplish some type of goal. And it got so messy that it was just like a feature function battle. And there was all these, you know, this basically gray area of what exactly to do next. And I think, you know, where I just came in, stepped in, realizes like, guys, yes, there's a mental checklist that everyone wants to check off at the end of the day when it comes to the features. But what they're really caring about is some type of outcome some type of problem that's going on and they're trying to solve it. So let's first, let's figure out what that is. And then as soon as I identified that with the team, it was very easy to say, well, guys, the competitors that you have brought up and that they have brought up in this deal so far can't solve that problem. So let's take it back to them level set. Like I get it. You guys are looking for certain features, but if you look at the problem you're trying to solve, you're going to just keep running circles going the other way where we'll give you a straight path to success. So that was, um, I'd say the, the big one where we were able to come in and really tip that deal 
from a, a three-way tie into a, a clear-cut path to success for us. I love that. And, and what it sounds like there, if I heard you there correctly, Eric, is, you know, because deals have gotten more competitive over the past year, you know, your previous company was no exception. Um, it kind of got into the dirty details of feature comparison. And, and to tip that deal, what you and the team had to do is kind of pull it out of the weeds and, and keep the conversation focused on the problems that you're solving, um, which is awesome. And I'm sure we're going we're gonna to dive more into that. But I do, I do want to pass it over to Tara and actually ask you the question in a slightly different way. Uh, was there ever a time in your career where there was a deal that you feel like your team should have won, but it went to the competitor? And can you tell us uh, a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the reason I love this story, I'm going to spoil the ending first, is that they they did come back around. Um, so this would have been probably about three, like two or three years ago. Um, our win-loss program kind of changed over time. Sometimes I was running interviews myself. Sometimes uh, we were outsourcing them to a partner. Um, but often often, most of the time, and I'm sure this will be familiar to a lot of people who are having to figure out how to schedule win or loss calls. I'm having to chase down the reps, but every once in a while, a rep just wants to know because they know they should have won that deal and they want to know what happened. Like, come on, why? Um, and most of the time I would say yes to those, unless it was truly like a, no, you know what, that's like, we know, we know what happened, my friend. Like, it's just such a clear cut thing. It's not a great use of resources, but he was right. It was a gaming company. We were perfectly set up for, to support them, but the rep had a theory about if it was because this company had a dispute with one of our other clients. Cause that can, you know, that can occasionally happen, right? Like, Oh, you have this person as your client. Well, I'm not going to join your client community. Um, and I showed up as I usually do to win or loss or exit calls, just like very curious. It wasn't my deal. They're not going to hurt my feelings. Be as honest as you would like. And it had nothing to do with that. They thought that, the competitor that they chose, which was our second best alternative, uh, was going to be better for them for international capabilities. And that's keeping in mind. So Benevity does a lot around supporting um, corporate uh, initiatives in relation to charities and nonprofits, right? So uh, they have on the employee side, employee matching, volunteerism. On the corporate side, they have corporate granting software. Um, we had some, well, they still have, I'm not there, but they still have some of the largest companies in the world. Many of them, like many of the most recognizable brands are their clients. And many of these companies are multinationals. And so you have to have really good international capabilities to make sure everybody has a great experience. And I was floored when she said, yeah, we just think they have better capabilities for supporting all of our global employees. Because I've had dozens and dozens of these calls with people who evaluated our software. And more often than not, they were coming to us from that competitor because of their international capabilities. Um, I don't have the best poker face all the time, but I tried really hard in that moment. Um, I don't argue in lost calls. I don't say, well, actually, like, that's not my place. My place is to just say, okay, that's interesting. Take down information and sometimes, you know, like, validate feelings if they had a really frustrating experience. 
And so I just said, wow, okay, that's really interesting. I don't know that I've really heard that before, but you know what? Thank you for sharing. At the end of it, again, thanked her for sharing. It was a great conversation. Nine months later, she emailed me and the sales rep, but I was her last touch point with the company. And she emailed to say, we've been implemented for three months and it didn't work out. And we want another conversation. And can you bring somebody who can speak to, and then listed a couple of the key things that are so crucial for international conversations. And it just showed that like maintaining that curiosity, not just being curious during the buying process, but even after the buying process, um, she was so grateful. And that's something that I heard from many of the people. Nobody else was asking for loss interviews. Nobody else was wondering, was was demonstrating that thirst for knowledge for how can we improve for how can we do better and she actually found me at benevity's conference last year i was talking i was like hanging out with our chief impact officer at the time and she came and she made a beeline to me and she and her partner actually like they gave me swag to give to my kids because she was so much happier and she saw me as an integral part of her buying journey that is such a great story and you know I, I, I captured a couple of things there. I mean, right out of the gate, as you mentioned there, Tara, like just by being curious and learning and, and not selling and not, you know, pushing back and just, you know, listening to them and saying, Hey, you're heard here. That was memorable. And when they went to that competitor, they had a poor experience. They came back through their own volition. It sounds like, and are much happier. And um, you could even argue delighted uh, so much so that they're giving you swag. The other thing that I wanted to point out just right out the gate of your story, which I thought was really I think really poignant for this discussion is that sales rep that identified the deal, they knew, they knew deep in their gut that they should have won that deal. And I think those are the deals that we really want to focus on, right? It's the ones that we, sh- we really should have won. We knew that we were a better fit, but due to miscommunication or, um, you know, misinformation in some cases, the, the client goes in another direction. Um, and so it's how do we, how do we convert those clients, even if it's not that day of how do we win them back in the future? And I love that, you know, I, I, I struggle the same way when I do win loss interviews, I used to be in sales. So I, I'm just, I have to hold back. I don't want to, you know, start selling or saying, Oh, well, actually this, this, this. Um, and I love that, you know, by, do, by not doing that, Tara, you were able to turn them around. I guess to, to flip it back to, to both of you, whoever wants to take this, were there any kind of takeaways that you had from those experiences or, or other similar deals that were tipped in your favor or around that, you know, kind of change the way you view your competitive enablement program or, or um, it, what were some of the learnings that you had through those kinds of tippable, winnable deals? Yeah, Tara, I'll hop off because it's on the tip of my tongue right now. But I think the first thing that that wasn't just a learning for myself, I think that's where, you know, the light bulb turned on, but I was able to bring that light to the rest of our team at that point was, guys, let's not have this feature function battle right? We know we do something different from the gate and there's a specific problem that we solve that we truly believe is unique. So let's not get into that, you know, boxing match with whoever the competitor is. Let's always bring everyone out of those weeds. Like you said, Brandon, I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, And the second thing was really just like, I think at the end of the day, involving myself a little bit earlier in the deal, because again, this was like, this was midway through, in my opinion, um, and probably could have been closed earlier. But um, as I think as a lot of us, especially in techno, there, there's innovators everywhere. So 
they're trying to basically build this Frankenstein to get to this ultimate goal. Whereas like we had this, we had this foundation for them to really just, just run out the gate and get to where they wanted to go with a lot less hassle. Um, and so knowing that we have that, you know, that unique value prop plus inserting myself in deals earlier to just kind of check in and, and make sure that, you know, things aren't going off the rails and, and we can insert competitive Intel on demand at appropriate times um, was my two big key learnings just from that one, that one deal. And we created a repetitive process for all the, the similar use cases going forward. That's awesome. So what I'm hearing is getting into that direct deal support earlier uh, and, or at least those experiences showed you the importance of that direct deal support. Um, Tara, how about you? Any, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I think um, sticking with the example that I gave, it really helped me to actually understand, like I knew that win-loss interviews were important in terms of like gathering information for us. How can we improve anything, whether it's, you know, the product, our marketing materials, our selling processes, that kind of thing. But that was the, that was the day that I realized that our compete programs can actually be an extension of the selling process that it's that kind of good reminder that we're on the sales team too, even if we sit in product marketing or somewhere else and that how we interact in those moments. I mean, it's, I I don't think anything I'm saying is like new or anything, but you know, it does reflect on the company and not just in like a professionalism sense, but can give them a sense of who they're going to be working with just as much as anyone in sales, anyone in CS that they might pull in or implementation or whatever. Um, So that was a big one. And then the other thing, just generally speaking, my, my big thing for winnable deals has always been what, what are your, what does your buyer actually care about? Because there were times, you know, when we had reps that would sell kind of the full landscape of possibilities, these are all the things you can do with us. And there were a lot of buyers, especially if they were first time software buyers who would show up, they don't need to see the world. And so if a rep would come to me and say, I know I'm up against this one and I need help, or I'm up against these two and I need help. My first question back is, what does your prospect care about? Because sure, I can talk about our differentiators writ large as all of them should be able to, but it doesn't matter if they don't actually care about those particular differentiators, if it's not going to help them. If we stick with that example of international, okay, well, if they only have employees in the US and they're not going to match donations or set up anything for outside of the US, are we going to bang on about international? Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So trying to help encourage that, like, don't think just about, sure, it's good for us if we sell all the things, but what's going to be good for them? Because if we have that kind of empathy and sell what's going to be good for the prospect, that's going to lay a better foundation for long-term and future success. I love that. And so what I'm hearing here is kind of similar to Eric's story. It's elevating the conversation to the problems that you're solving. And and in a more tactical sense, I think both of you kind of said this in different ways, you know, competitive enablement is a revenue support function. We can directly impact revenue and, and not just in, you know, a correlated way of like how much revenue our battle cards influence, but directly helping with new business deals, but also renewals. And I think, you know, that might be a topic that might be interesting to people in the audience, especially over the past year or two, if you're in software, particularly or high tech, you know, risk on industry, um, 
protecting customers is incredibly important and competitive has a role to play uh, there as well. And I think um, that's kind of my takeaway just hearing your stories here is, you know, there's a lot that we can do to help, you know, very directly impact revenue. Um, then the question is, how do we, how do we showcase that? How do we scale that? Because direct deal support isn't a scalable function, um, but it is so, so necessary. Um, I'm going to kind of related to this topic, but I want to introduce actually a question that we had submitted from one of our community members, uh, Becca Byers from Cloud Academy. So Becca asks, often we are dealing with large enterprise buyers who one, already have a competitive solution in place and B or two, <laughs> two tend to dip their toes in rather than go all in with one provider. So what I'm hearing from that is, you know, they likely already use a competitive competitor. It's a, it's a saturated space. And they're also kind of trying before they're buying, maybe doing a pilot or a free trial or a small, um, a small segment before rolling out broadly. Um, the question is this, any tips for unseating the incumbent competitor and giving the confidence to jump all in rather than use multiple competitors at once? I know it's a very kind of specific scenario, but I think there's a lot of topics here that we can break down. I'm curious what comes to mind, uh, Tara or Eric. Yeah, so that was a huge thing at Benevity. We did tons and tons and tons of uh, rip and replace because um, often it would be, you know, there are a few providers that have been there kind of as long as, as Benevity or longer. Um, and so there were there would be companies who would, they had been with a, a few other providers and it's like, okay, who's left? And they would come to us and say, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is what we were looking for. And so the first thing is really understanding if you, and you have to take it like competitor by competitor, but what are the things that are driving their customers or clients to look elsewhere? Um, because, you know, we knew when service started to decline at one, we knew when payments were an issue at another. Um, so really understanding what those are. And then we can probe for those early on, like in those discovery calls. Um, you know, I came from a sales led world. I'm actually in a sales led world again. Um, but you really need to know who you're up against and what are those, what are their paper cuts? What are their major issues likely to be? Cause then you can even in the reach out, just say like, is this a problem you're having? We know that, you know, this company, this one, and this one had those problems. Is that something you're experiencing too? Often that can be really persuasive. Um, but if you're talking about large enterprise, it's just going to require that extreme curiosity, especially in discovery and just listening, like what's not working today. Um, and where can we help solve that? Where do we know that we're better than them and that your life does not have to be as hard as it can be today. And then making sure that all of your teams can like all your sales reps can articulate that. Totally. I, I think you're, you're spot on there, Tara, of just, you know, again, elevating the conversation, but focusing on like what's not working and and doing whatever you can because those are really unique situations. You know that that Becca's describing there, where um, a buyer or client is using the competition, maybe for a slightly different use case, maybe for the exact same use case, and it's, it and you know I know this kind of seems like cliche advice, but it really comes down to understanding why and you know where your solution can fit in. Because if they were fully satisfied, they probably wouldn't be talking to you. Um, Eric, anything you'd add to the? That oh was... yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Tara, right. It's hard being in a sales led world or sales led org when we live in a product led world. Right. And 
Um, I feel that pain as well. I was in this very similar situation, um, both in at, at LucidLink and now at Kiermit. And something that I, I learned, and it's more of, I think, kind of an, an art in general, um, is I like to live by kind of a philosophy of letting someone taste an apple instead of just walking them around the orchard. And really what that means is give them an opportunity to to actually experience what you're offering in some form or fashion, right? There's a variety of different ways that you can do that, you know, not as extreme as the freemium, right? There's different ways that you can you can really give someone that experience. And, you know, we had that same struggle because we're, we're going against people who are, they have petabytes and petabytes of data stored somewhere with somebody, sometimes multiple um, entities. And we're trying to come in there and take the whole TAM, right? And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. So what you have to figure out is little ways to get them to taste the apple. Um, it could be with um, actual demos, right? You could show them the product. What I really like, and this is maybe a different take on it, but if get as much um, testimonials as you can gather about competitive situations, right? So I moved from X competitor to you, or this is why I chose X competitor or you over X competitor. And then you really give people that taste of what the experience is like on the other end. And then they can hopefully guide themselves to the right decision back back to your own product. So I think it, it's really hard to just nail down one specific tip because obviously every offering is going to be different of what you can you can provide to the table. But find those points of friction where you know that you can win um, and, and show off your product. And then hopefully you, you add different offerings that make the apple taste better, such as a, you know, a really smooth buying process, right? That just immediately differentiates you from everyone else, everyone else in the market or extremely palpable content, right? That, that no one else can touch because you have that unique point of view and in, in how you address uh, the problem that you're solving. So, um, yeah. you know, my, my big message for everyone on this is, is figure out ways to let them taste that apple. Can I yes and that? Oh, a hundred percent. So the, yeah, the thing that I would add um, kind of as a way of doing that too, is if you can sell even just one module, like I get the idea of wanting to replace everything they're doing with a competitor, but sometimes it's not the worst thing to be able to sell them the one module and let them try. And especially if you know, it's your best one, let them experience it. Like that's a great way to get them to taste the apple, especially if you're not in a PLG kind of situation, um, because then they can see oh, you're actually going to live up to your brand promise. You're actually going to be able to do the things. And then from there, they might have the confidence to be able to go to their leadership and say, you know what, we're going to punt these other things out. We're going to bring it all in and we're going to do it with this provider. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that point because it resonates strongly with how we're approaching our upcoming launch. So very much, you know, painful can't really give them that taste of the apple from the traditional perspective, but, you know, trying to do that with another offering. And then at the end of the day, bringing them, bringing them both together uh, for the big, for the big whopper. So I love that point. And, and just another really good way of how we get them involved in experiencing and stuff, instead of just trying to talk them through the motion themselves. 
We'll be right back after a word from the Compete Network. The way the market looks today is not how it was yesterday. And spoiler alert, it'll be different tomorrow too. Hi, I'm Devin O'Rourke, founder and managing partner at Fluvio and the host of the Embracing Erosion podcast. On my show, we talk to product marketers, founders, investors, and go-to-market leaders to shine a light on what it takes to tackle difficult go-to-market challenges. How do you make decisions with speed and effectiveness? What makes for a great leader? And what are the most common go-to-market mistakes and how can you avoid them? Embracing erosion means embracing change, and you'll hear from some of the best in the business who know firsthand why embracing erosion is key to success. Join me, Devin O'Rourke, on the Embracing Erosion podcast, powered by the Compete Network. All right, back to the show. I love this discussion because like, although Becca's question is very specific to her enterprise, I think it's a great example where there's a lot of different approaches. And so, you know, hearing, you know, you two take kind of slightly different approaches around being very, you know, enterprise focused, you know, finding the pain, really running a great enterprise cycle. Um, Eric saying, Hey, let's, let's have them taste that apple, right? Don't, don't shy away from the try before you buy kind of scenario. And, and Tara, to your point, you know, there are scenarios where that makes sense. Um, I'll actually throw in, like, I think, you know, for those of you that know clue, we're in a kind of unique spot where, you know, there is content involved. And so by having two solutions, there's duplicate work by in that scenario. And so we actually lean uh, kind of similar to what I think Becca's hoping for is we lean towards what we call the rip and replace, right? There's, we want to really, I, I love the analogy that Dustin threw into the chat. I'll read it out quickly to, to make my point here. Dustin's talking about how, you know, it's almost like supermarket shelf space battle. You know, you have a row of shelves and you're fighting for the best spot, but not necessarily all of the, um, all, all of the space on the shelf. Whereas I think to use that analogy, um, what we try to do at Clue is show, actually you could get way more sales from your supermarket if you replace all of the products with us. And again, that doesn't apply to all scenarios, uh, certainly at larger enterprises. I think to Becca's question, that's a lot more difficult. There's more teams that use different products and services, but even up to companies of, I'd say close to 5,000 employees, um, we, go in with the mindset of rip and replace. Let's, you know, do everything that they were doing with our competitor solution and then more, and let's demonstrate that, that new value that they'd get um, out of replacing it. So I just find it's interesting that there's, there's different approaches. And of course, you know, your mileage may vary depending on your industry, depending on your types of buyers, your personas, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Any, um, I, I just want to remind too, is if anyone's just hopping in, feel free to drop your uh, questions in the chat and I'll read them out uh, as I did there. But there's also a raise hand function at the bottom, should be at the bottom right hand of your screen. So if you hit that and you want to jump on stage here to ask your question live, please, uh, please do. You're more than welcome to. I want to go back to something I mentioned just briefly there around retention, because that was another area of our report that we put out which what we found was the majority of revenue leaders are saying that retention is the most important revenue stream in 2023. Um, and so I think this, and, and by the way, I know this is probably especially prevalent for SaaS, B2B technology, software, but we surveyed across industries, this included manufacturing, financial services. And so I think everyone feels like maybe to different degrees, 
everyone is focused on customer retention. Um, I'm curious how Eric, Tara, how do you, how are you thinking about retention as it pertains to your compete programs, either in previous roles or how are you planning to do that in your, in your new roles? Eric, yeah, you want I'll hop in here because this is something very near and dear to my heart. Um, if you don't know, then um, I guess surprise. Hopefully we all at least some somehow get this concept. But keeping a customer is way more cost effective for your business than going out and trying to find a new one. Um, probably about five times, I think, more expensive to go and find that new customer. So being able to keep them on board is so critical from just the financial health perspective of your business. But then when you look at like the broader landscape, right, every time someone leaves your business for something, most likely they are going to a competitor, right? That is, that is the, I'd probably say 80, 20 rule at least where most of people, they're not just, you know, deciding to live with that problem again that they, that they got rid of. They're going to find a better way to solve the problem than the way that you're doing. So finding those, I call them points of friction a lot, but they're just those things where you can make sure that people want to stay and um, digging into what your competitors are doing to keep their customers on board, right? Um, I love the th being able to go back to people who you've lost to, you know, nine, 12 months after the fact and, and ask them how things are going. Right. Because they're they clearly haven't come back to your your side of the fence yet. So things obviously are working in, in to some capacity over there. So earlier to your point, Tara, if you build that relationship with a great loss interview, you can actually go back then and find out more intel later on the line after they've had their their full experience in that year term and they're ready to resign and not churn from your from your from uh, your competition. Right. So um, that's that's my two cents on it. Tara, anything you'd add? Yeah, it's funny. Um, even though I'm on day like five or six, it's already come up as that's going to be my first priority is starting to look at churn. Um, I've been quite lucky that my last role and this role, churn numbers aren't high, but at the same time, you still want to get ahead of it because especially right now with the way the economy is, everybody's trying to figure out what do we not need to pay for? Um, and so some of what I was doing the most of in my last kind of few months with Benevity was working with our churn prevention team, uh, the team that does the work on renewals. Um, I did that kind of in a few different ways. They hadn't been, because our churn rates had been so low, they hadn't had the same kind of competitive enablement that sales had had. So, you know, running those training sessions with them helped them to become more familiar with who are the likeliest. And again, in this case, I didn't just do, okay, this is tier one and this is tier two, but it's like, who are you hearing from? Who are you likely to hear from? Because there were some that hadn't even started coming up yet. I knew they were going to, and they did. So it was good that we had done that, tra that proactive training so that they were prepared. And then the other thing was occasionally they would actually bring me into calls. Usually what they would do is if they were going into a call, they would bring me in just to help prep, uh, help prep the people that were going to be there. But there was one in particular where it was one of uh, their oldest clients. They weren't even like a big client, but again, as Eric said, it costs more to bring on new clients than it does to retain them. Um, and these folks just said, you know what? It's been a long time. We want to go back out, look at, look at the market again. 
Um, and the client success person and like their, their account person and the renewals team was kind of a little nervous about that. And they said, are you willing to just come in and have a conversation? I said, absolutely. And I showed up not as the like, oh no, you need to stay. But as the, I have talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have evaluated software. They have selected us. They have not selected us. Um, I am paying attention to the market. If you need to go somewhere else and live your best life, that's cool. But like, do you want to ask me any questions kind of as you're starting your journey? And they listed, I think three, I can only remember the two, but like the first one was a competitor that actually they're shutting their doors in a few months from now. So I said, you probably don't want to go with them because they've notified their clients that they're going away. The next one, oh, you care about international capabilities? Okay, well, the provider you suggested literally has none. And they kind of said, huh. And so I said, maybe look at this one and this one. Um, and they ultimately ended up staying with us. And so I think there's something now, is that always going to work every single time? Possibly not. I didn't have to do it very often. But I think going in there and not being afraid to acknowledge, first of all, that there are other providers. Um, they may or may not be the best fit. This is what I know they're good at, what they're not good at. And just taking that kind of an impartial stance or as impartial as you can be while still being a full-time employee um, showed a better partnership than just like a panicked, you know, Hail Mary kind of a conversation. I, I love that story. And I think just again, from that, I'm hearing one thing that's like kind of simple, but so effective is enabling customer success, enabling your renewals team to the same degree that you're enabling new business. Because to Eric's point, it's way easier to maintain and grow existing customers than it is to secure a new deal. And it's such a simple uh, and elegant solution. And I think more and more, especially now, more and more uh, teams need to do that. I did, Dustin, I did see your hand pop up and then it popped back down. So just wanted to see if you still want to, to, to hop on. Um, I'll give you a second there. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so I think Tara actually answered the, uh, the, the question there because my question was, hey, what, you know, because we, we spend all of our time putting together methodical processes and systems to support sales. And my exact question, I think Tara went into it is, is how do we put together that methodical same process for um, for our, our customer success to, to challenge churn? And the secondary thing would be uh, a lot of times we you know we design a lot of our campaigns around supporting sales. How do we adjust the way we approach campaigns to battle churn? So that's that's my question. Yeah. So. There were kind of some subtle um, differences. I, you know, we're all strapped for time in these kinds of roles. We don't have big teams. And so I couldn't necessarily build decks completely from scratch for renewals. But what I would try to do is spend time with the deck that I used for sales. Also, it was like, it was a super deck heavy culture that I came from. So, I mean, whatever deliverables other people are creating, maybe it's not that for training scenarios. Um, and there were some things that I would just go and tailor afterwards. And so, you know, I would make sales reps do far more objection handling than I would make anybody focused on churn do, but I would give them considerations and let them know like these are the objections you can absolutely expect to see. This is how you should handle them. Um, but in terms of the actual role playing it out, they approach it just from a different perspective. So they didn't necessarily need that as much. Um, but then I would also make sure to give them like they needed way more Q&A time 
versus say sales reps because the sales reps they you know the the industry business uh, is playing in and it's not a it's no there are no public companies it's all private companies and so a lot of what i was learning was coming from them anyway so it was more of just trying to be respectful like what's the best use of everybody's time what does everybody actually need sales for the most part doesn't want a Q&A unless it's truly like they're brand new we had a situation where we had a few of our sales reps go to a competitor so for that one we did proactive training immediately our objection handling changed overnight <laughs> all of that and so the training for them we did a lot of objection handling. And I even asked them to consider things that would literally never come up, mostly just for them to keep in mind, people who understand our business are embedded in that business now. Mm -hmm. Renewals didn't need that. They just needed to understand what is up with that company. What do they need to be prepared to mm -hmm. defend against? Um, because you know those reps built relationships, like it's all relationship selling. Uh, and so how do we make sure we know enough that we can preserve our relationship, even if the person who brought them into the org went somewhere else? That's neat. I like yeah, one thing I'll, so I was just going to say one thing I'll add. I, I think you, you're spot on there, Tara, around like the sales reps just kind of naturally know more having been in more competitive scenarios. The way that we kind of think of objection handling from sales and translating that to CS is kind of on the flip side. So less about protecting renewals, to be fair. But, you know, what does a former competitor's client really t tend to care about? And so it's like, what are those uh, things that might come up in a conversation, right? A common scenario, especially in if you're selling into b2b software but really most industries nowadays is that people's tenures are shorter than they were a decade or two ago and so being able to understand hey if someone joins your customer account and has experience with a competitive solution what are the things that they tend to care about um, that might be different from your you know ideal customer profile and so we try to equip our csms with that because you know if they have a customer or a new product marketer joins that organization um they want to just get a sense of, okay, this person has used XYZ solution before. They, they might care about these things. So I can kind of direct the conversation there. And then, you know, the cherry on top is how do we address those things differently or in a better way? And I, I want to chime in on this, this juicy topic here. This is an awesome, awesome question from you, Dustin. So one of the things that I'm, I'm going to be trying here with our upcoming launch. I, I haven't, obviously, I'm not going to tell you I've seen success from it quite yet, but I'll be building basically launch playbooks for both the customer success and then a, a alternate for sales. And the focus point that I'm going to have is more of the adoption portion in terms of like, how do we, we get people knowledgeable about not just the functions of the product, but what are best practices? Because I'm basically, um, in a, you know, in a finance type role, right? We're helping people learn um, who have who've more or less kind of had some, some bad habits in the industry that have built over time and have created um, this compounding issue of cost, right? You guys are trying to affect revenue. I'm over here trying to affect cost. But um, for me, I've found it very unique that my customer success team is, is constantly asking like, what's the value of all of these features? So for me, it's going to make sure that they know each profile, you know, each, each persona that we build is going to have very succinct um, value props for them. And then I'm going to combine them with 
testimonials, right? So I think that's probably something we kind of forget on the customer success side is use those success stories from your existing customers and say, hey, we have another customer who's doing X, Y, Z. You could also be doing that too. And here's the result you could be getting from it. Um, so I'm definitely going to be very testimonial heavier for customer success side, which in you know my past life, I, I kind of neglected. And I think in general, we, we probably do um, as a whole and focus testimonies more for sales. Interesting. I, I think that I think that's very uh, good way to look at because a lot of times I do remember like, uh, you know, launching a certain product that is related to here. I remember having the chance to talk to someone else who had done it. And and that testimonial was like, oh, okay, it can be done and it can fit those. So that that's a good point, Eric. This is, I know this kind of goes back to a previous question, but it, it also reminds me of our conversation around the rip and replace scenarios is, um, again, this will be different for every industry, but, you know, our, our industry is a little bit more nascent. You know, there's a lot of companies that don't have any platform. And so when they've committed to using one of our competitors, there is this fear and uncertainty around migrating of saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to rip this thing out. We're going to like take out all the work that we did there, all the saved settings and content, and now put this into another tool. And so one, one approach that we've taken is we minimize that as much as possible. We have a dedicated team that will do that work for the client because we don't want that to be an issue. Um, when, you know, we don't want that, that to prevent them from being successful just because they had committed to a prior vendor. There's that kind of sunk cost fallacy there where, Oh, we've, we've done all this work. We don't want to have to undo that. So we, we really try to make sure, Hey, that's, that's awesome. We'll, uh, we'll work with you to, to switch it over. So, um, anyways, I know that was kind of pulling us from retention back to uh, rip and replace, but I thought it was relevant to what, what Dustin said there. Um, yeah, I'm just looking through the chat here. I think, see there's some more discussion around churn. Uh, and, and, you know, just to call out, I know the topic of today's, you know, CE Live is about tipping winnable deals, but I do think that, you know, deal, you know, this is a funny thing. Like one of the, I think one of the most important shifts that's happened over the past decade or two is that sales enablement has really become revenue enablement, right? And um, you could say that about sales ops becoming revenue ops, right? And and just recognizing the importance of the customer and growing customers, making sure customers are successful and enabled and supported. And I think competitive enablement falls in that bucket as well. And I think you called this out, Eric, a lot of teams start with sales. And I think that's totally normal to do. It makes a lot of sense. They are proverbially the lowest hanging fruit. Um, but customer success, renewals, expansion teams, sales engineering, it's a natural extension. And um, you definitely don't want to miss that. You don't want to skip that step and then go to like product or marketing um, when you can really help your existing customers be more successful. Nothing against product or marketing, but like, <laughs> um, awesome. I, ben, I saw you raised your hand there. Did you want to jump up? Yeah. So I have a bit of a, can everyone hear me? Okay. Yep. I have a bit so, of a philosophical question for, for the group here. So uh, one of the things that stuck out to me most uh, getting into the work around competitive revenue gap and tipping winnable deals is how by tipping a, relatively small amount of deals, you can really have a big impact. And what occurs to me is that uh, often we're talking, uh, I would say we in sort of in the industry, we're talking about business at scale, we're talking about numbers in the aggregate, and it's the big numbers that get people's attention. It's the big numbers that make a difference. So I'm wondering how, if for Eric and Tara, if you've experienced sort of how you can push both those buttons at the same time and say, let's swoop in 
and make these five deals count because that's going to have an impact while not losing the focus of sort of the bigger numbers that if you don't speak to, you might lose confidence or, or interest from, from your cross-functional. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, super awesome and thought-provoking comments out of you, Ben, as expected. Um, so, you know, for me, I like that idea of the five deal portion because what I would be looking to do there is, is find those, you know, differentiated deals, those ones that we feel are, are unique enough that deserve that attention, but they're essentially, we're, we're going to get more of those type of deals or vice versa. If you look at the deal as, you know, a smaller size deal, what it could actually grow to. If you can kind of balance and prioritize that out and then obviously, you know, um, respond to the bat signal when they, when they raise it for the big whopper deal. Um, I think that's a really, uh, responsible way to approach it because you're, you're essentially attacking from both angles and, and doing what I like to call the squeeze approach. So you're, you know, you're working on your big guys and then working on the little guys and pushing them all together and eventually it all meets in the middle. Um, so yeah, very, um, very interesting take and, and something I'm, I'm going to, tossing my noodle as I continue building my strategy out for this launch. Yeah, I think um, that's where having those resources, whether it is battle cards, whether it is, you know, we've done the team trainings or whatever, so that you can scale for kind of the many, many deals is really crucial. Have that tight. It's worth spending time on. Um, And then having your rubric too for like, what are those big deals that you want to be pulled in on? And that might require working with sales leadership to even decide like, okay, what are the, what are the triggers? What are the, when is the right time for us to come in? Because there are some like, yeah, it might be a monster deal that we have like a 10% chance of winning. That's not going to be the best use of my time, but if it's a monster deal and we have a pretty dang good chance of winning and like, it's neck and neck and we're in it, but they just need that little bit of something. Pull me in. Absolutely. That's, that's the no brainer, but it does require that like we have to put the guardrails in place because every deal is special to every rep for some reason. Um, So we have to decide which ones are truly the like, okay, send out that bat signal and which ones are the, you know what, we made you a lot of really wonderful resources that will do the trick and will get you there. Um, Maybe not quite as quickly as calling me up, but when you have 50 sales reps that you're dealing with, you have to be, or more, like there are some enterprise sales teams with hundreds and thousands of people. We have to be judicious. I, I love that uh, the approach uh, both of you that take there. And yeah, I think, uh, again, this is, I think my advice here will vary depending on your company size at clue. We were small enough where I could kind of cast the net wide and then kind of narrow the aperture over time. But I, I understand a large enterprise, you can't do that. That's going to, you know, fill up your calendar basically immediately. And so I think having that pragmatic approach, the one thing that I'd maybe add as an example is if you can get that one or two deals, like, you know, note of note deal, it doesn't have to be a massive deal. Uh, one or two deals under your belt, that then becomes a real example that you can point to if you're struggling to get it, you know, get sales involved um, or building trust in your content, right? It's like, oh yeah, like 
Eric really helped me out with this one deal or yeah, Tara helped close, you know, you know, Acme Corp. Did you know that? And, and that kind of helps build your reputation over time to all the other efforts that do scale. And so I think it's, it's a great question uh, as Eric mentioned, Ben, because I think it is a balance. Um, and I think the key there is finding the right balance for your calendar. That makes sense for however large your sales organization is at the end of the day. All right. We have seven minutes left. Um, not as, not as many questions this, uh, this week, not going to lie, which is great. It's fine. Maybe we were just, you know, hitting all the topics that everyone wanted to, wanted to know about. Um, and of course, as always, there will be a survey that goes out. We'll ask your, your feedback if I'm completely off base there, but yeah, we have like five, seven minutes uh, left. I do have a couple closing uh, remarks to make, but I'm curious if there's anything else, uh, Eric, Tara, you two want to bring up, um, kind of on this topic or if anyone else in the audience, um, wants to, wants to chime in now's the time. Well, yeah, I mean, Tara, uh, you want to talk about the conversation we had about the three things that any compete professional should have other uh, than just battle cards? Yeah. All right, because I think, you know, that's that's the go-to. That's how I got introduced to competitive intel was, hey, Eric, we need battle cards. Um, but <laughs> as I've expanded my knowledge here, I've learned that there are you know, three, at least three other things that I could say are far more important than that. So I'd like to maybe toss that over to your net and ask you, what are those three things in, in your opinion that um, are more important than the battle card? Yeah. So none of these are specific tactics. Um, surprise, just like a lot of what I've uh, talked about earlier. But I would say the first thing is, and I touched on it a bit, but just having that extreme empathy, you definitely need to have it for the buyers. So make sure reps are showing up and finding out like, what do they actually care about? But as compete professionals, we actually need to have extreme empathy for our sales team too. Um, because especially if you're in a situation like what I described, where it's all private companies, you have to lean on the sales reps to share information for you. If you don't have a good relationship built, they're not going to be as inclined to bring that to you. And also their biggest fire may not be our biggest fire, but it's still their biggest fire. And so we need to just kind of um, retain that because that's how we're going to learn what does the buyer, what do buyers in aggregate and an individual actually care about? What are the factors holding deals back? How can we actually help? It always works better with trust and trust, in my opinion, starts with empathy in addition to just proving that you can bring it. Um, the next one is not only know your differentiators, which I know is kind of a basic, but also like really understanding deeply which ones do prospects actually want to pay for? Because yeah, okay, you know what? Maybe what you're selling can do all kinds of things, but if people don't want to pay for half of them, even if we do them better than anyone else, then we may as well not have those. It's not going to be persuasive in helping to tip a deal one way or the other. And then the other thing is we cannot be afraid to talk about our weaknesses internally. I know we have to be very careful how we talk about them to uh, our sales, like our, our revenue teams, because we don't want to freak anybody out. We don't want, you know, sales to lose faith in what they're selling. We don't want um, client success to lose faith in what they're supporting. But at the same time, we can't improve processes and we can't improve products 
if everybody is too precious to hear that maybe their baby is a little bit ugly. Like sometimes we have to pass on difficult feedback because we're hearing in those loss interviews that like, yeah, you know what? You thought that feature was tight and they thought it was busted and that it just is not compelling. They don't want to pay for it. And so to a certain extent, we almost just need a little bit of, um, gumption, I guess. Like if confrontation sucks, you got to do it anyway, because you're getting all this information about what's working and what's not working in the market. But if other teams can't take it, and if you can't pass it on because you're afraid of how they're going to take it, nobody's going to be able to improve. I love that. Eric, anything you would add there? To... Yeah, I'll keep mine short and sweet just, you know, sake of time. But in terms of you know, research versus the insights you deliver. I say dig into those weeds as far as you can. Find all of those weird crevices, even in the, uh, you know, the deep threads of, of forums. But when you turn them into insights, make them real digestible, make them real relatable, make them, you know, resulting in the outcomes at the end of the day. That That's really all you should be focusing on with the insights. Um, secondly, is this is how I live my life in general, but especially in compete, like, don't be afraid to just fail, right? Put out some intel that you best have that you could gather. Let people take a, you know, lack of a better word, take a poo on it. You know, let them come back with you with additional intel that can change that. And and just don't be afraid to fail. I think that's one thing that that as humans, right, we're all a little sensitive to. And lastly is is I think the most important is create and instill and build a competitive culture in your organization. When people, like you said, are open and honest about the weaknesses and know what the competitor might be better at or are willing to provide that feedback that they get on every single call and bring you into deals, you now have won the, you know, half the battle by just having a culture of people who, who take competitive intel seriously. Totally. And, and I think, Tara, you mentioned this as well, being honest with your weaknesses, having that empathy. It's kind of funny to kind of wrap us up here. It's like, it's almost like to tip those winnable deals, we actually have to be honest about why we lose deals and not sell in those critical situations when what we really need to do is listen, because uh, that's what's going to build trust to win that deal or that customer uh, down the line and get some sweet swag for your kids. Um, all right. Also, I want to give a quick shout out to Eric there. I'm going to blame my cold meds, but I completely missed that question for discussion. And Eric, you had me covered. So uh, a big shout out to Eric for uh, for uh, moderating uh, with me here. Um, and that is today's show. We have one minute left. I'm going to sh just shout out a quick plug here. We are also partnered with Andy McConnor Bicknell's Healthy Competition Community, and he is putting out a salary transparency survey. It's completely anonymous. If you feel comfortable doing it, it's just going to ask you a few questions. And the more respondents that Andy gets, well, he'll be able to provide a more robust report around what our CE and CI experts actually earning based off of a lot of different variables, your seniority, your tenure, your uh, region, et cetera. So uh, the form is in the chat there. If you have a moment, if you feel comfortable, um, fill it out. Um, if not, we'd love to see you at the next CE Lab event next month or our next roundtable as well. And as a, as a reminder, all these, uh, all these messages will live on in the Compete Network and please do invite your friends. It's completely free to, uh, to join. All right, thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Tara, appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Bye, y'all. Bye, team.